Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. In our increasingly fast-paced world, traditional foods and foodways often have trouble competing with speed and convenience. But never fear. All over the planet, there are people working to save the superior flavor, nutrition, and cultural significance of heritage foods. On this week's show, we're going to introduce you to some of our greatest heritage food warriors. We'll begin with Sarah Lohman, author of Endangered Eating, America's Vanishing Foods who recounts her adventure researching some of the country's rarest ingredients and the often extraordinary efforts to preserve them. Next, a trio of folks from Slow Food USA, a group at the center of this movement, discusses their book, The Ark of Taste, Delicious and Distinctive Foods that Define the United States an in-depth look at some of the stories behind these disappearing flavors. Finally, we'll meet Casey Korn, host of Magnolia Network's Recipe Lost and Found, a show that helps families recover their long-lost recipes and the memories that go with them. So set the table. It's time to sit down and give thanks for these delicious foods and all the folks working to save them on this week's Louisiana Eats. The slow food movement began back in the 1980s when a group of Italians banded together to protest the invasion of fast food into their lives as a McDonald's prepared to open at the foot of the Spanish Steps in Rome. Since that time, the slow food movement has crossed the globe in an effort to preserve biodiversity and traditional foodways. Today, there are over 160 countries participating in the movement, which has come to represent access to good, clean, and fair food for all. In 1998, I read an article about Slow Foods' Arc of Taste, a virtual catalog identifying endangered heritage foods. To be accepted onto the Arc, a food had to have cultural ties to a specific place, be in danger of disappearing, but most of all, it had to taste good. Local chapters were tasked with nominating these endangered foods, which is what led me to found the New Orleans chapter. Within a short time, over 100 people joined me in creating art nominations for foods that were becoming scarce. Creole cream cheese, anyone? We had a great ride, 
and today there are over a dozen foods from our region proudly listed on the Slow Foods Arc of Taste. My passion for preservation is shared by Sarah Lohman, a food historian and author of the books Eight Flavors, The Untold Story of American Cuisine, and Endangered Eating, America's Vanishing Foods. She spent a year traveling across the U.S. to find these endangered foods and learn the stories of the people who are saving them. Sarah, I am so tickled to have this opportunity to speak with you again because your book, Endangered Eating, really deals with slow foods arc mm -hmm. of taste. And of course, yeah. anybody who knows me knows that I was involved with slow food for a long yeah. time. I mean, before I knew that about you, I could tell because, I mean, I should say that this book has been inspired by the arc of taste and the sort of entries of rare and endangered food from across the country. And even when I was at the very beginning, just looking at the sort of different regional selections, I was just like, man, the New Orleans chapter has got it going on. And I know that the work you've done in on onboarding has already made a difference. I know that Creole cream cheese was basically on the verge of extinction. And now you can, I mean, they don't have to be like super common mainstream foods, but there are people continuing to make it and places where it's being sold. You can access it when you're in New Orleans, which is a very special thing that anyone visiting the city should do. And another super special thing that I did is that you also wrote about the Roman taffy cart as well. Yeah. And that means that I made a special point to go find them. And if listeners have never sought out the Roman taffy guy, I mean, it's amazing. It's this handmade taffy cart and the candy was delicious. And it's just like when I spotted this, you know, 19th century mule drawn cart from my car window, it was one of these moments where it felt like the present sort of faded away for a second. And you could see deep into that past of New Orleans. So I think that to me, that's the whole point of the arc of taste and of my book to sort of encourage people to travel. Or I think more likely, if you're already traveling somewhere, make a point to go on these little food adventures and really get mixed up in the local food culture. Well, I am pea green with envy at all of the <laughs> incredible food adventures you had while writing Endangered Eating. And I'd really like to start off on the topic of dates. Yeah, sure. When it comes to Coachella, People always think of like the big music concert. Yeah, but Beyonce. Yeah. But actually, Coachella is like the central spot for growing dates in the United States. And that's been going on for quite some time. Yeah, for about a century. I mean, that's really what put Coachella on the map. Basically, scientists from the USDA, I mean, they were just looking at profitability, which is, you know, a complicated topic and that they saw this part of the desert as being empty and useless. Of course, there were indigenous people living there doing just fine. But they were sort of analyzing and thinking, what um, agricultural industry can we, can we make here? And someone realized, his name was David Fairchild, that this area had a similar climate to the Arabian Peninsula, and it could be good for date growing. And as the date industry sort of moved on over a number of years, the growers there developed date varieties unique to the Coachella Valley, which you can find nowhere else on the planet and are still available to this day if you know where to look. 
they are available online, aren't they? They are. Yeah. And I love that. There are several date gardens that you can visit in person if you're in Coachella, even for the festival I outline in the book, but they also all sell online. Well, your adventures took you from one end of the United States to the other. Literally, yes. Because your book covers Hawaiian legacy sugar cane and mm -hmm. the delicious Navajo churro sheep. Yes. Oh, the salmon stories are grand, the wild rice stories. But I was very honored when you came to New Orleans oh, to cover Choctaw filet powder. Tell yes. me about your New Orleans adventure. Well, so this was an interesting one because the Ark of Taste isn't always about preserving endangered foods. You know, the sassafras trees that filet powder is made from, those aren't going extinct. They're pretty common. What they're trying to protect with this entry, what you are probably trying to protect, is its traditional use and a traditional way that it's being made. So filet powder is used to thicken and flavor primarily gumbo, although of course I ran into other uses of it. And it is really only highly localized to New Orleans, so the Gulf Coast, let's say, because Houston is also a part of that Cajun culture, and then a little bit to the Gullah Geechee culture in the Carolinas, too. So it's more about preserving a tradition. And of course, I know that you moved to get this particular ingredient onboarded because of one man, Lionel Keys. And he is, as far as we can tell, was the last person making filet in the traditional manner by using, you know, a hand carved pilon and pilet, uh, a, a very large, uh, essentially African inspired mortar and pestle to grind the filet fresh. And his was known to be of the highest quality. And also what was special about him is that he would tour to all of these like fairs and festivals. And so people would get to see and hear and smell the filet um, being made right in front of them. And it really connected people to that food history. But by no means has filet itself died out. I have to tell you this puppy, I mentioned it in my book, as soon as I landed and was getting my rental car, you know, we, they're always, <laughs> I don't know who people think I am, but they're always like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, oh, I'm researching filet powder. And the woman was like, well, I didn't know it was endangered. I, my house is full of it. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, I know, right? Such an amazing answer. So I asked her how she made it. And she said, I put the leaves in a pillowcase and I put it in the dryer. So, you know, part of my point in that chapter too is that it is important to remember the traditional ways of doing things. And in this case, mourn the loss of Lionel Keys, who passed away really not that long ago. But I also love that the tradition is continuing. We're just utilizing different technology to do it. And my goodness, you took me from my dear friend, Jared Zerang's Wayne Jacobs Smokehouse. Yes. Oh my gosh, and Coco, what an amazing human being. He is the filet grinder for Wayne Jacobs Smokehouse, and he's been making filet by hand for 50 years at least, something like that. He was an absolute hoot and a pleasure to visit. Well, you know, just like Lionel Key, Coco's not with us anymore either. We, we lost <sighs> yeah. him during the pandemic, but um, luckily you can still find those little jars of that green herbaceous scented filet powder at Wayne mm -hmm. Jacobs Smokehouse and Goodness knows that Jared Zerang, he sure makes a good gumbo, huh? Oh, he really does. Of course, when I visited, I had to stop and have a dish of gumbo. 
And I cleaned my bowl and I loved it because the server, she came along and picked it up and said, good and gone, right? (laughs) (laughs) I love that too. Tell us about the Choctaw Nation. So Philae is a great example of what food historian Jessica Harris calls the braid. And the braid is this basis of American cuisine that involves indigenous European and Black African ingredients and knowledge. And that got braided together to create this foundation of American food in the 16th, 18th, and early 19th centuries. Um, So I bring all this up because filet is a Choctaw ingredient. It was them and other indigenous groups that were using sassafras in various ways. And interestingly, in the Choctaw language, filet powder is called a kombu hakish, and kombu with a K is very similar to gumbo. So you would think, okay, well, gumbo got its name from this indigenous ingredient. It actually happened the other way around. It became such an in-demand ingredient for the Choctaw to trade with the mostly French colonizers of the area that the name for the dish it ended up going into, gumbo, this French and African stew, um, kind of went backwards and renamed the powder itself. Well, and I just learned so much. I'm going to use filet in all new ways now, and I was glad you included recipes, too. Yes, it's it's funny how tradition has sort of whittled it down to just one recipe um, that it goes into gumbo, but it's it tastes incredible and it's just wonderful. Well, what is more American than the apple? And as you point out, you know, the varieties known in American publications from 1804 to 1904, there was 14 thousand American apples. 14,000 apples. And now when you go to the grocery store today, about how many apple varieties do you see? Maybe five or six. You know, we have 150 rare apples on that list. Mm -hmm. And uh, nine of them are cider apples. And that was the direction that your research took. Heirloom cider apples. Tell me why you made that choice. Yeah, in America, those are really the varieties that we've lost. Most of those thousands and thousands of apples weren't good eating apples, although some of them were. Most of them are what cider makers call spitters, that you take them off the tree, you take a bite, and then you spit it right out. They can be really tannic and mouth drying. They can be sort of soft and mealy. But when you press them and maybe blend them with the juice of other spitters, they turn into really amazing cider. And of course, when we say cider, Poppy, we're not talking about the fresh cider in the grocery store. We mean cider, fermented, alcoholic, and as complex as any California wine, right? So I wanted to trace that story and find out what happened. And, you know, the answer is it has a a lot to do with the temperance movement, a lot to do with prohibition. Having an apple tree or even making cider at home wasn't illegal, but there was shame involved in it, like your neighbors might whisper. So we physically lost a lot of apple trees because they're being cut down. So though a lot of these apples are still out there in the forests and with the cider revival that's been happening over the past 10 and 15 years, there are communities of people seeking out long lost apples to begin to propagate them again. Well, it's all about thoughtful eating, isn't it? Yes, it is good vibes of supporting a people to carry on their own food traditions, even if you personally are never a part of it. That's a really great thing to do, too. 
Well, thank you for all of this inspiration. I hope that people read your book and are inspired to go online, find these small yeah. producers, and support them with their Christmas gift dollars. That was Sarah Lohman, author of Endangered Eating, America's Vanishing Foods. Coming up next, we hear from the folks at Slow Food USA about some of the movement's preservation efforts, as well as their book, The Ark of Taste. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce. Step out of the heat and into the flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Camellia is celebrating their centennial with innovations for today's lifestyle. Beans for two. If a bag of beans is too big for your family, Camellia's New Orleans-style red beans for two and Cajun-style white beans for two has everything needed for dinner in today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. The New Orleans Slow Food Chapter was one of the first in America, founded before there ever was a Slow Food USA, which arrived on these shores in the year 2000. Today, there are more than 100 local American chapters. Back in the day, I served for several years as chair of the U.S. Arc of Taste, and I am proud of the many things we accomplished. Recently, Slow Food USA published a book on the topic, The Arc of Taste, Delicious and Distinctive Foods that Define the United States. I was eager to sit down with the authors Giselle Kennedy Lord and David Shields, joined by Slow Foods Executive Director Anna Mule, to learn more about the book and how things are sailing on the Arc today. Well, welcome, 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 and what an interesting work this is. Uh, I know from my experience that this is a book 
that is mm, 20-plus years in the making. And how many Ark of Taste U.S. foods are there on the list now? Thanks, Poppy. Yeah, we have over 400 items now on the U.S. Arc of Taste. And like you said, the Arc of Taste is a really amazing avenue for grassroots communities to look around in their neighborhoods and their communities and see what is happening in our region, what is endangered, what used to be here that's no longer here. Well, I loved your quote in the introduction of the book because I do think it sums it up when you say that it's all about joy and justice of biodiversity. That's right. You know, we always want to hold these two things together. It's about the flavor and the deliciousness and the cultural relevance of these foods. And also it's about the story of justice and why these foods are not on our plates anymore and why they're not in production, and then how we can bring them back, how we can revitalize these foods and bring them back onto our menus and into our communities. David and Giselle, okay, so you had more than 600 foods, I imagine, to choose from. How many ended up in the book and how in the world did you make those decisions? less than 75 that are in the final book. There were certain items in the arc of taste that um, were rather limited in in their scope. Uh, Another thing we made in terms of a decision was not to include many processed foods um, and concentrate on vegetables, grains, fruits, and meats, proteins, that people could conceivably get a hold of. And always, always honoring indigenous foodways and first foods in in that. So trying to kind of, you know, the the regionality of each of these entries was pretty tricky because really we're looking more at um, where they are most prolific and thriving than where they're from. I would like to address that accessibility and economic issue. Yes, unfortunately, here in the U.S. and the way our food system is set up, the local organic foods are tend to be more expensive than the mass-produced commodity foods. And I think what Slow Food and the Arc of Taste does is issue an invitation to make food decisions based on flavor and nutrition instead of efficiency. One of the things that I was so glad to see you all did in the book is um, there's a little index for each of the foods. And one of the categories is notable producers. I think one of the great heroes of saving ARC foods has certainly been seed savers. My, My goodness, They grew some things out that were very rare and difficult to find at one point, probably in the early 2000s, and and we actually would have tasting meetings at Seed Savers, and they are such heroes of this piece. Right, and it's interesting. Seed Savers now is urging that every region in the United States form its own version of seed savers because access to foods is important access to seeds 
is equally important. Poppy, I wanted to add that we have been running a campaign called the Plant a Seed campaign every year, which features seeds from the Ark of Taste. And we have a different theme each year. We focus on greens this year. We're looking at grains and roots next year and really helping people learn about seed saving. Definitely. That is a brilliant, brilliant campaign. I'll I'll never forget down here after Hurricane Katrina when um, we were doing fundraising and doing some slow food events at the farmer's market here. Seed Savers sent us boxes and boxes of seeds, and everybody was excited and getting involved and planting things in a time that it was very important to have something fresh and green Mm -hmm. again. I have to say, I hope that the pumpkin pie lovers across America have an opportunity to make a pie with the Long Island cheese pumpkin. It changed my life when I first tasted it, and I seek out cheese pumpkins every year to make jam, to preserve in various ways, because that is not your, like, watery doorstep Halloween pumpkin, is it? Tell us about what makes that one so special. Right. It's uh, it's one of that family of Moscata pumpkins that is a native pumpkin, and, and the ancestry of them is all from Guatemala, and they're all relatives of the butternut squash, interestingly enough. The one on Long Island is really interesting because it's the flattest of them all, Now uh, you have this wonderful pumpkin that uh, can provide you all the pie you want. Or one of the things that it's done down south is to make those uh, what they call uh, pumpkin chips, which are sort of glassy, sugared pumpkin preserves. They're delicious. (laughs) (laughs) So are there any other stories or, or things that are really near and dear to your heart that you'd like to bring up? Yeah, I am in Oregon in the Pacific Northwest. And so I'm going to call out the Olympia oyster because I just feel like oysters are these incredible creatures. They are capable of so much. (laughs) And the Olympia oyster is an amazing story. We almost lost it. We managed to keep it around by way of many people who worked really hard to essentially care for the water um, and the landscape that they were growing in. They grow in a much bigger, sort of a much longer stretch than seems logical. Um, But again, oysters are sort of this tenacious, amazing, powerful creature. And I got to talk to someone named John up in Washington, who is growing oysters on his own, you know, piece of property that is like from his family and um, very reverent about who was there before and how and their place in keeping that oyster kind of going. So if you come out to the Northwest, I encourage you to look look around for the Olympia oyster. They're still a little hard to come by. Giselle, is there anything you wanted to add? Yes, I am really drawn to the story about the Navajo churro sheep. Um, this community is one of our presidia, which is like a, a community that rallies around one particular food. And for the Diné, the sheep are just so intertwined with their spirituality, their philosophy. They use all the parts of the sheep from weaving to the meat. Um, so I, yeah, just give a shout out to Roy Katie and the community 
um, in Navajo Nation and, and for the work with the Navajo churro sheep. It's a really incredible story. Amen. And Gay Chandler and Gary Nabin, yeah. too, because yeah. I don't I don't think they'd be where they are today without them. Uh, I have one for Louisiana. Yeah. Yellow Creole corn, which is the classic kush kush corn. It was a native corn used uh, for grits, yellow grits in 19th century North Carolina. But it became the sort of Cajun uh, fried corn, uh, macho corn. And um, it stopped being grown in the 1970s. But in the past three years, at least two growers in, in Louisiana have brought it back. I think uh, if you want a classic uh, Louisiana taste in the future, that uh, would have a perfect place there along with your Long Island cheese pumpkin at that Thanksgiving table. Absolutely. <laughs> Yellow Creole corn. Before we hang up, I simply have to ask you all about the great rallying cry, eat it to save it. Uh, do we have any institutional knowledge of where that phrase comes from? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you all a little tale. That's been the name of my LLC since 2003. Because back when we started the Slow Food Arc of Taste, the number one memory, the thing that made sense to me, I was so lucky to have my little French great-grandmother from down the bayou alive till I was 10 years old. And Mama would never tell me, clean your plate like Americans do. Instead, she would say to me, Poppy, eat it to save it. And so I'm just so tickled that that phrase has gained such traction, and now you all know the rest of the story. Poppy, what was your grandmother's name? We have to have a proper mm -hmm. attribution here. Her name was Ethel Lirette, L-I-R-E-T-T-E, -T -T Moran, and she was from Chauvin, Louisiana. And mm -hmm. I, I can't say that eating it to save it has helped my waistline over the years, <laughs> but it, it just means so much because we have to cultivate an interest in these foods and a knowledge around them, and we have to urge people to eat them because that is the only way that we can save them. Poppy, one thing I love about food is that it is about the human relationship that we're in with the agriculture and the food that we grow, how we need to be in kinship with the planet, right? So I think that that eat it to save it talks about that, that it's not a us versus nature thing. It's like we are part of the story. Humans right. are part of the story mm -hmm. about agriculture. And you see that in the stories that are woven through this book. And you see that in that in that phrase, eat it to save it. Thanks so much for the great work that you all are doing. Thank you so much, Poppy, and for your uh, legacy with Slow Food. You know, you've made a, a really important contribution historically. So it's really nice to have this conversation with you now and to talk about the long history of uh, 
of connections, especially in Louisiana. I look forward to the next time that we get to see each other. Hopefully, it'll be around a table set with some delicious Ark of Taste foods. That was Anna Mule, Executive Director of Slow Food USA, as well as David Shields and Giselle Kennedy Lord, co-authors of The Ark of Taste, delicious and distinctive foods that define the United States. What Louisiana foods are represented on the Slow Food USA Ark of Taste? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from Visit the North Shore, Discover world-class culinary flavors on the North Shore this fall. Experience the bounty of the bayou and the rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at visitthenorthshore.com St. Tammany Parish Louisiana's easy escape just 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter Here's this week's culinary quiz question brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen what Louisiana foods are represented on the Slow Food USA Arc of Taste? Peering through the online listing of foods currently recognized by Slow Food USA, I discovered a dozen, mostly old friends. If you've got a locally grown melaton on your table this Thanksgiving, it's thanks to Slow Food and the amazing work of Dr. Lance Hill, who resurrected the melaton after all the local vines drowned in Hurricane Katrina. Are there local satsumas in your ambrosia? They're on the ark, too, originally put there after the orchards drowned in Katrina's salt water. Sure, they're widely available today, but with salt water intrusion and land loss, they still deserve special care and attention. There's the handmade filet powder Sarah Lohman spoke of, and of course, another great local triumph, Creole cream cheese, which was all but extinct when I first started the local slow food chapter here in 1998. We saved that one from the brink of extinction, but to me, 
Most special of all is Roman Taffy Candy. Before there was Slow Food USA, former members of our original New Orleans chapter will remember the day we voted Roman Taffy Candy onto the Ark. It was a beautiful, sunny Saturday afternoon when Susan Spicer had Spice, Inc., our original home base here. Ronnie Cotman pulled right up to the curb with his mule-drawn century-old cart, and we all ate his candy in celebration before unanimously voting him onto the Ark of Taste. Authentic local flavors need our attention and devotion. Just remember, you've got to eat it to save it. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Casey Korn is a triple threat. She's a classically trained chef, a food anthropologist, and host of the Magnolia Network series Recipe Lost and Found. For each episode, Casey combines all her skills to help families reclaim their lost recipes and the memories that are inextricably linked to those meals. She's here to tell us why and how she does it. Casey, I am so glad that our paths have finally crossed because you are truly a girl after my own heart. As soon as I learned about Recipe Lost and Found, I thought, what great work to do. I'm so thrilled by the work that you have been after, the very important work. But, you know, I'd really like you to explain what a culinary anthropologist is. Yeah. um, So for me, uh, being a culinary anthropologist basically is illustrating how we're all connected through food. Um, You know, what social anthropology is, is really translating one culture into terms that another culture can understand. And since everybody eats, it's a great way to form essentially bigger and bigger Venn diagrams of overlapping ways that people are alike. So you, you went the academic route first, but then you got practical with hands-on cooking and studied at the Cordon Bleu and have worked in professional kitchens. So tell me what drove you to go that next step with this process. Well, I was really inspired by everything that Anthony Bourdain did, as I think a lot of food media people of every generation have been. And I realized that after growing up um, in a film industry family in L.A., that traveling the world and eating amazing food and sharing stories was really something that I wanted to do with my life. So after getting my degree and traveling and eating and starting to work in the restaurant industry, Um, I found myself in London where my now husband um, is from, he's from just outside of London. And I was trying to figure out visa things of how to navigate living in a foreign country. And he suggested I go to culinary school. After I graduated, I moved back to LA and started working in kitchens. What an interesting path that is, because if you looked back in your childhood and, and youth, 
Where was that culinary thread born and fostered? Eating has really always been a passion of mine. And I, I never really cared that much about cooking until I sort of was on my own in life and was trying to figure out how to eat and realizing, oh, I can't eat out all the time. I don't have a job. I'm in school. Um, and I really just became very inspired by, you know, eating, cooking. They're obviously two sides of the same coin, but it's something that because everyone is doing it, you know, hearing stories about my friends' traditions that they have with their families on holidays versus mine, coming from an L.A. Jewish family to go into school in Connecticut, it was a really great learning experience of just how many different ways there are to exist as an eater. And I loved that idea of that everyone is eating different things and I just wanted to eat it all. And then by cooking, it added another layer of, well, now I don't need someone else to do it for me. I can do it for myself. What is lost if we lose our culture's recipes? No matter what your culture is, what do you think we lose? You know, when, when a recipe is lost, when a dish is lost, and you really can't get that back, it it feels like you're losing the person all over again. And, and every time you would eat that dish, if it's, you know, a traditional Thanksgiving dish, a lot of it's, you know, wrapped up in holidays because that's when we have traditions, right? Um, but, you know, every Friday night dinner, every Thanksgiving, every Christmas, every whatever it is that that dish is missing, you remember the loss of that person again, that person's legacy, that history. And that's such a sad thing. It's it's taste memory. Isn't that what yes. this is truly all about? That it's all tied to your heartstrings, you know? That has always been my philosophy. You're absolutely right. And that's why on my show, Recipe Lost and Found, we always start with a meal together, me and the family member, where we can taste either a dish that is very similar or very different to the dish they remember. Because once you're sitting there eating, you're smelling, you're tasting, you're feeling the textures of this food, there's always more memories that come up about the dish we're trying to recreate. Because sense memory is so strong. And without fail, people always remember more than they think they do about a dish once they're eating. And I imagine there's a lot of tears shed about that. I cry every episode. It's <laughs> I would do. <laughs> both while we're filming, which usually gets cut out, and then when I'm watching them, my husband laughs at me. He's like, you know what happens. I'm like, but it's such a special story. And it is, and I'm not saying that, you know, like, you know, jokingly. Like, I really do cry watching every episode because it isn't just about the food. It's about the family and the memories and I just love food and people, and I love being able to give this gift of a memory back. What, in all of these travels and searching that you've done, what's the common thread? The common thread that I found is that people know more, A, they know more than they think they do about a recipe. There's always clues that they have that they don't realize are connected to this dish. So. The part that really is touching for me, and I find every single episode is, it's not actually about the recipe. It's about the story. It's about the journey. And it is because we'll never know if the recipe is 100% right. It's much more about creating the memory and bringing them back 
to that. And that's the part that always hits home. Casey, looking back over all the guests that you've had in your two seasons, tell us about some of the people who really tugged at your heartstrings. Oh, wow. Um, Well, one of the really cool recipes we did was this brown stew chicken, where the family is now in uh, Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, their grandmother had come on this, this unbelievable journey of coming from the South. The grandfather was from the Caribbean. It was this great mashup of Southern and Caribbean flavors. And it's a recipe, brown stew chicken, that every family has their own recipe. But the grandson who I was helping, you know, has his own culinary background and the family and the community that came together to support him in this journey was beyond belief. And I I love that uh, episode, especially, you know, talking to you about it, because me researching this dish, having no idea what this recipe was, I thought brown stew chicken, I'm reading about it, I'm hearing about it, I'm thinking, oh, well, sounds to me sort of like a Cajun dark roux, the grandmother's from the South, like, so... It turns out in working with this amazing Caribbean chef that there's this whole other technique of browning sugar that gives a completely different flavor, but sort of looks like doing a dark roux for this dish. It it blew my mind. I mean, I love learning new things, but I was so convinced. I was like, oh, Cajun, that's the way we're going. And then it was like, we are veering off a completely different direction to this Caribbean technique that now, I mean, I use it on all these different things because it's such a cool technique of browning sugar. And it's the most made recipe from the show that I get, you know, have people reach out to me and say, I tried this recipe because it's so excellent. Where can people find the recipes from the episodes? All the recipes are on my website. Uh, I am the because <laughs> I love a food pun. Um, and you can find all 10 recipes on my website. Have they ever stumped you completely? Was there ever something or, or did you ever, you know, like you can tell us the truth, Casey, <laughs> like, like, did you ever like serve up the dish and they all went, no, <laughs> we did do this one dish, um, where we had an ingredient mix up. Like we couldn't find one of the ingredients. We ended up finding it too late. It required a lot of prep. And we sort of like, just sort of went with it. We're going around the table and everybody's trying it and giving their memories. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, I think these people are being a little bit tough on me. And I know they have really strong memories. And I took a bite and I thought, oh no, they are right. And the hard part was, is it was such an easy fix. Like we really could have fixed it, but just with the way that TV is shot, we just didn't really know until it was too late. And so the recipe, it works, totally works if you have the right ingredient. So, <laughs> <laughs> What's your next frontier? I, I mean, Louisiana has been on our list from the beginning Uh, The Midwest for me would be really fun. There's so much of the American story that is not in these big, I mean, most of the American story is not in these big coastal cities. It's in places with more culture where people stay, you know, LA, New York, they're very transient cities. And 
I love going places where the culture is rooted really deeply. And that's what you get when you start moving in towards the center. Well, this has been just such a delight. And I'm so glad you made the time to talk with us on Louisiana Eats. Thanks, Casey. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a pleasure. That was Casey Korn, chef, anthropologist, and host of the Magnolia Network's Recipe Lost and Found. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. And don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, Visit the North Shore, and Camellia Beans, celebrating their centennial with an innovative new product, Beans for Two. Camellia's new Red Beans for Two and White Beans for Two include everything needed to cook two authentically seasoned bowls of beans, scaled for today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. And from D'Agostino Pasta, celebrating our culture with fleur-de-lis, crawfish, and alligator-shaped pastas. All handcrafted in Louisiana, just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, with writing contributions from Becky Retz, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. Thank <laughs> you.